Habakkuk 3. So if you don't know, I'll give you the quick recap. Chapter one, Habakkuk begins by simply saying, God, I see all this evil. Why don't you do something about it? God says, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. Then Habakkuk says, what? You can't do that. You can't bring the Babylonians down here. I don't like what you're doing. His theology got massively tweaked in chapter one. He's probably very simple up to that point. Sin is bad, God is good, hell is hot and long, simple. Then all of a sudden chapter one just throws this on its head because God's going to use this wicked enemy to bring discipline upon his own people. He's like, wait a second, God, you can't do that. You're a pure eyes, you can't do that. What's going on? And so chapter two, he sets himself apart. And I call it tower time. I need to, my theology has been tweaked. I can't figure this out. I'm gonna go somewhere, a high spot away from people and I'm gonna sit and I'm gonna wait and I'm gonna speak and pray and listen. And it's there in that tower that God says this to him. The just shall live by faith. Brilliant, brilliant. The just shall live not by their understanding or not by their circumstances, but the just shall live by faith. And that's what we begin to see happening in chapter three, that there's a, a movement in Habakkuk's soul. And I'll explain it like this. I think it was about four years ago, may have been five years ago, um, when the Oregon State Beavers still won a football game, like when they'd win just one or two. And I was at a soccer game and I'm watching my daughters play soccer. So I didn't watch the game and someone told me, hey, the Beavers won today. I'm like, wow, miracle, praise God. And so we get home and Elijah said, hey, let's watch that game. And so we had this, this, it's like, you can watch the game in like 30 minutes. It's really cool. It's the only way to watch football. So you can like put it on, it just gives you all the plays. So we're sitting there watching it and it's just typical Beaver football. It's fumble, interception, pick six. I'm just like, man, this is crazy. Normally I would have been like so mad. Like, are you kidding me, you idiots? Why do you do that to me every single year, right? But not this time, why? because I knew the end. So I'm just like, how are they going to do this? Wow, they played that terrible and they're still gonna pull this out? This is amazing. Because I knew the final score. And I think sometimes that's what we want from God. We want God, God, give us the final score so we don't have to worry about anything right now. Tell us how everything's gonna work out. Give us all the information. That's what Habakkuk really wanted. Make it so that it's easy. So we can just kick back and be like, okay, I'm not worried about any of this. But I don't think God does that. And that's not what God does for Habakkuk. He doesn't tell us to score the game. Instead, here's what's supposed to happen. So growing up, um, I had a favorite football player, Joe Montana. I love Joe Montana. Do you, who knows his nickname? The comeback kid, right? Because he, he was the comeback kid back then. And they were so good, they didn't have a lot of comebacks to do, but he had 34th quarter comebacks, couple in the Super Bowl, like he was the comeback kid. So I just became accustomed because of Joe Montana's greatness that it didn't matter what the score was in the fourth quarter, I'm thinking he's still gonna win because he's the comeback kid. He's gonna win this game. He's gonna make it. And it was based not on knowing the final score, it was based on knowing what? Joe Montana, his character, 
his capability, what he was. I think that's what God wants. I don't wanna give you the final score, Matt. I want you to know me. And because you know me, you know, no matter what it looks like in the fourth quarter, I can come back. I can come back. And then you start saying in anticipation, God, I can't wait to see what you're gonna do. I don't know the final score, but I know this. I know who you are. I know your character. So in chapter three, here's what happens. Habakkuk begins to remember what God has done in the past. And then more than that, he begins to know God's character and trusting that character is gonna echo out into the future. And then he learns that the just shall live by faith. Not in knowing the score, but faith in knowing the scorer, knowing God. So it's a brilliant chapter. Let's jump in. Verse one, Habakkuk three. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. That appears to be a certain way of actually playing a musical instrument. So it's like a, a way to play something. Verse two. Oh, Yahweh. Now, some people ask me this. Why do you say Yahweh? Well, if you see in your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, what does that mean? It is the covenant name of God. In the 16th century, the covenant name of God was just changed to Lord. And we've kept that ever since. But I think if God gives us his name, which he does in Exodus chapter three, that we should actually call God by his name. It'd be like me telling you, hey, my name is Matt. And you say, okay, Bill, wait a second. Call me by my name. So whenever I see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, I just change it to the best way we know how to pronounce it, Yahweh. Some people say Jehovah. I think Yahweh is correct. So freebie, oh, Yahweh. If it's not capital L-O-R-D, if it's capital L, little O-R-D, it's most likely Adonai. So then I won't do it then. All right, there you go. People have been asking me more and more about that. It's my habit. Okay, oh, Yahweh, I have heard the report of you and your work. There's a whole bunch more to that, but I'm trying to keep myself from going down that rabbit trail right now. It's a fight, I'm gonna fight well. Oh, Yahweh, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Yahweh, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. That's an underliner. So he begins to pray. And his prayer is this. He knows that God is going to bring Babylon down and Babylon's gonna bring destruction to Israel. He knows that's coming. It hasn't changed. But he knows this, God's last word is never destruction, it's always restoration. And so that's why he prays, Lord, I've heard the report of your work, I fear it. But in the midst of these years, in the midst of God, judgment and destruction bring restoration. God's last word is never destruction, it's always restoration. Read the last book of the Bible. It ends with restoration new heavens, new earth. That's always God's final word. And then he has this little phrase, in wrath, remember mercy. I love that. Because Habakkuk has gone full circle now. 
In chapter one, the whole book begins with him looking out on his neighborhood or out on his town or out on Israel, seeing God's people doing wicked things, really wicked things. And he begins to get mad about it. God, why don't you see this? Why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you punishing these evildoers? That's the way the book began. God, bring your wrath. Bring your wrath down. Get them. Ever feel that way? Ever look around at our country or our city and you see what's happening and you're like, God, get them. I call it Jonah Christianity. And there's almost always a progression when you get saved. Like when you first get saved, you're still close enough with a lot of people that are wicked that your heart like wants to see them get saved still. So you're like inviting them to church and you're, you're around them and you're telling them about Jesus, how good things are. You're like, come on, man, you gotta come to church with me. You gotta meet Jesus because you're still close enough to them. And you've got this joy in this relationship and you know Jesus is the answer. So you're always like, ah, come, come, come. But after a little while, what happens is this. Some of those friends get saved with you and then you kind of move away from the friends that didn't get saved. And then you start to make new friends in church, which is a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's a good thing. And then you kind of move out of any of those circles where you're dealing with that anymore and you get in what I call a Christian bubble. And this Christian bubble is an echo chamber where you kind of talk about all the same things, same news, same problems, same issues, same everything. And it's like you just echo around for a while and that echo chamber begins to shape the way that now you look back on the culture and the world that you came out of. And now you start looking at the culture and the world that you came out of and you're like, yeah, those guys are wicked, evil people. God, judge them. You become like Jonah, right? Nineveh, I can't stand those people. I want God to take those people out. They're wicked, God, destroy them. We become Jonah Christians. Anyone ever feel that way? I'll be in Home Depot in October, Pottober, right? And just walking down an aisle and you see these people and they're buying lots of fans and heaters and just stored stuff. And you walk by, you get a contact high from them. You're like, man, I'm hungry right now. <laughs> and I think, what's happening to my city? What's gonna happen to the future of my kids? What's, gonna, what's happening here? And there can be in me a Jonah mentality, like, oh, God, get them. Bring a plague of locust. They'd be really happy locust, really hungry locust. It'd be awesome, man, it'd be perfect. And I know when that happens in my heart, I've moved to a really bad spot because I'm supposed to, like Habakkuk, mercy. God, I know judgment's coming, but I'll oh, bring mercy on people. And I think the way that he got back to mercy was prayer. He met with God in the tower and he got God's heart in the tower. And when he got God's heart in the tower, he was reminded, oh, I'm supposed to have mercy. I'm not supposed to be wrath. I'm not supposed to be judgment. I'm not supposed to say, God, destroy those evil people. I'm supposed to be, God, have mercy on them. Like you had mercy on me in my wickedness, in my evil, have mercy on them as well. That's when I know I'm in the right spot. And it's taken a while for Habakkuk to get back to that. I gotta be careful of the Jonah mentality because Jonah's story, I was just talking to a guy earlier, Jonah's story does not end well. He ends bitter, angry. It's, the, it's one of the most depressing books at the end because that's not how we're supposed to be. And when my heart gets calloused toward the people that Jesus died for, I got major problems. God, forgive me. 
soften my heart, change me. He comes full circle. And then he starts in, and I'm gonna read this and I'll try to explain it. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. You guys know what Selah means? Think about it. So read that little phrase. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Think about it. Anything there? Are you like, man, that is brilliant. Probably not, right? You're like, what in the world? I don't know what to think about on that. We'll get back to this. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Okay. When you read this, especially that little phrase, God came from Timan and the Holy One from Mount Paran, think about it. Here's what you have to know. The Bible has a certain, I don't know a better word to say than this, than, than a code. The Bible's written in a certain kind of code that um, you have to know that code to understand even what to think about. And if you don't know the code, you never know what to think about, right? If you've been married for any length of time, probably you and your spouse have these little kind of things that only you guys know, right? Little phrases, maybe it's how to leave a place when you really want your spouse to leave, right? You can have some things. Well, my wife and I have this one um, and it's called wall time. And it came about during a very busy, busy time of our life. We had five kids, two extras at the time. My wife was going, going, going. And I, and I stopped, I'm like, hey, what's going on with you? How you doing? Do you wanna get away? Do you wanna go to Hawaii? Do, I mean, what, what's going on? What do, what do you need? And this is what she said to me. She goes, you know what I wanna do right now? I just wanna go into an empty room and stare at a wall. I went, oh my God, this is really bad. Lord, help us, right? <laughs> I mean, just, I just want to stare. So now I have this saying, like, do we need some wall time? Just get away and stare at a wall. Like nothing else. I don't want to do anything but just stare at a wall. Now you wouldn't know that, and you do now, but you wouldn't know that unless you're in on the code. In America, we have that, right? So 9-11, what does that mean to us? Right, the worst terrorist attack on American soil. And it, it, it's our code now, 9-11. Um, how about crossing the Rubicon? Who knows what crossing the Rubicon means? Okay, well, that's a code that you don't know. So crossing the Rubicon is this. It's going to a, a point of no return. It comes from Julius Caesar when he had his army together and he's coming back to Rome and you are never to bring a standing army back into the city of Rome. You always disband your army showing that, hey, we believe in democracy, we believe in the Senate, we don't believe in, in Caesars or dictators. So you disband your army. Well, Caesar did not do that. And he came to the Rubicon and he had a talk with his army and said, we're not disbanding. And when they crossed the Rubicon, it was, you're not going back. And that was the end of Rome being ruled by a Senate and it became Caesar's instead. So when it says you've crossed the Rubicon, you're, what you're saying is you've gone past the point of no return. You can't come back. So there are these, these, if you don't know that, then if somebody said that, man, I'm crossing the Rubicon, you'd be like, good for you, man. Sounds good. <laughs> right? That's, the Bible has a ton of that. And the Bible writers always assume something. 
They assumed biblical literacy, which is not something that we have as much as they did back then. So when he writes verse three, what you have is a reference to the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is the Exodus and into the promised land. God going against a Pharaoh, a massively bad dude, taking him out and rescuing his people and redeeming them and bringing them into a good place to exist. It's that story. And that story is repeated over and over and over and over again. It's the story. And so these phrases, Timon and Mount Paran are right around Mount Sinai. So it's a way of the, the biblical author saying, hey, remember the story, right? I call these things hyperlinks. Have you ever read like an article in the paper or, or on, on the internet and it has a little something in blue and you can click on it and it takes you to a previous article that talks about whatever they're trying to explain? That's what these are. These are hyperlinks back to the stories of scripture. And if you don't know the stories of scripture, when it says Selah, think about it, you're gonna be like, yeah, I got nothing. I don't know what to think about right now. So it's a good thing to just like go back and read these stories. So this is Mount Sinai where God comes with lightning and with power and earthquakes. And and then it goes on from there. Before him, verse five, went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. What would he be talking about there? Plagues, right? The Exodus story. How you had this Pharaoh, this wicked empire that was taking God's kids and casting them into the Nile River and killing them. And God comes with nine different plagues. And I believe those nine plagues were nine opportunities for Pharaoh to change his mind. Repent. Even his own advisors said this. They said, these plagues are not from man, but they're from God. And right after, that, right after his own advisors, his, his core cabinet, right after they said, bro, you're messing with God now, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. He said, no. It's God giving him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, nine times. And then the 10th time, God says, that's it. And the way I put it is God punched Pharaoh in the mouth and said, let my people go. You're gonna let them go, period. And so it's, 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 it's reminding the readers of God. Look at what he's done. Remember his works. Remember his faithfulness. Remember his power. It's why in verse two, it says this, Lord, I heard the report of you and your work and O Yahweh, do I fear. Like God is awesome. I don't mean that like, hey, that's awesome. I mean like awesome, weighty, scary in a way, is he not? The the God of the Bible is scary in a way. I think C.S. Lewis captured it in the Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy is gonna meet Aslan and she is told that Aslan isn't a person, he's a lion. And she's like, a lion? What? Well, is he safe? And the beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe but he's good and he's the king. And that's what I tell you. That's the Bible to me. He's good and he's the boss. He's not safe. And what you find in the Bible is really God's presence is no longer safe. Is it good? Yeah, but it's not safe. It's like the sun. Is the sun good? 
especially on a day like today when it's foggy and freezing in the morning. Oh, the sun is really good. But is the sun safe? Try to get close to it. Try to give the sun a hug. You're doomed. Ever since the fall, that's been this tension with humans, right? God is good, but there's also this look out because we've been cracked and broken. We can no longer handle God's presence. And there always has to be a mediator, an intermediary. Inter, there has to be someone between us, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's, that's what you see right here. Like, God, I fear you because you know, you're, you're awesome. Ah. So it's very important. The Bible is to be read over and over and over. The more you read it, here's what happens. The more the hyperlinks make sense. The more you come to verse three, when it says, say la, you're like, aha, I know what to think. This is God on Mount Sinai in power, demonstrating his power. Okay, so it keeps going. Verse eight. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Yahweh? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. That's scary, right? You, your Tommy gun is loaded and you're ready. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. This is a bad crew, right? Might is right. We'll buy off justice. We'll do whatever we want. They're bad. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I heard and my body trembles my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. They'll get theirs too. There'll be an end. Okay? You don't see verse nine on a flannel graph when you're in kindergarten, do you? Like too often, I think we tame the Bible down so much for children that it, 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 it's almost meaningless to me. And I don't think it's actually healthy. I think the Bible should be appropriately taught to kids. But this is not flannel graph theology here. And it's more of God's work. It, it's just, he's retelling, the sea is split. What's that? Red Sea crossing. The river is split, Jordan crossing right? It's freedom from slavery. It's entering into the promised land, the good place that God has prepared for his people. There's just all this hyperlinked are there. It's God being faithful to a faithless people over and over and over. Verse 11, the sun and the moon stand still. When was that? Right? When Joshua is taking the land, God tells him, hey, tell the sun to stop. It's God's power over the very rotation of the earth. 
I'll make the sun stand still. It's just this power, 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 right? And the whole motive for all this, him coming, him threshing, his arrows being full, what's the motive? Verse 13, key. You went out. The reason why you're doing this is for the salvation of your people. You're going out to save your people like a warrior saving your anointed, your people, bringing salvation to them. It's what Peter would say in 2 Peter 3, 9. God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to salvation. Then verse 14, I love this. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. To me, that's judo theology. The very arrows that were coming to strike God's people, he turns them around and they strike the enemy. And you see this pattern throughout scripture. The very thing the enemy wants to use to destroy God's people, he uses that very thing to save his people, right? Pharaoh. Pharaoh was using the Nile River to drown God's kids in. Where did the savior of the nation of Israel come from in the Exodus story? Moses, what does his name mean? Drawn out, why? Because he came out of the Nile River. The very river that was being used to kill God's kids became the instrument that brought out the redeemer for God's kids. And that's no accident. That's God saying, I'll use the very instruments of evil against itself to destroy it. And you see that all the way through the Bible, Revelation 17 and 18, one of the best examples, evil devours itself, Revelation 17 and 18, just brilliant. But there's this one little note that to me is, it, it clarifies all of this. Because sometimes we can read like, God's just treading the nations and he's doing all the, ah, that sounds really crazy. That doesn't sound like the God I love and serve. Well, look at verse 13 and see if you can hyperlink this. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. When you see house of the wicked, that means the folks in charge, right? The house of David. This is the folks in charge. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him singular now. It's been plural, plural. Now it's singular. Laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced his singular own arrows, the heads of his warriors. What's that a hyperlink to? Genesis 3.15, right? That the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. What you see is the real enemy, public enemy number one is right here. What God is after, when he's going to save his people, there's one enemy that has to be dealt with. And that enemy is Satan. And that's what you see. God went out to save his people. And the one enemy that had to be dealt with, his house had to be crushed. His head had to be dealt the final blow. The prophets do this all the time. Another great example is Isaiah 65. Read verses 17 to the end of it. It talks about a new heaven and a new earth. So when John the apostle in Revelation is talking about new heavens and new earth, Isaiah had already talked about it. And there it's like this brilliant, it's back to Eden. People live, if you die at a hundred years, you die as an infant, right? The ox will eat grass or the lion will eat grass like an ox. 
Uh, kids will play with, with a cobra snake, right? It's this brilliant Eden. Man and animal, back together, shalom. You don't die. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. New heavens, new earth. And right in the middle of all this, you're like, yes, 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 yes. There's this little cryptic phrase, but the serpent is gonna eat dust. What it's saying is the enemy, Genesis 3.15, is gonna eat your dust. He's done. He doesn't enjoy the restoration and revival. The big enemy, capital, a, capital E enemy, he's finally done with. It's brilliant. So the enemy God's after in chapter three is guess who? Ultimately Satan. Well, that enemy has to be dealt with so that my people can be saved. So when you decipher the code, if you would, and you read through this, looking at the hyperlinks, you know Habakkuk can now rest because he knows this, God has a loaded Tommy gun and it's pointed at the ultimate enemy, Satan. And that enemy is going to be dealt with and that enemy is going to be annihilated. And so that we then receive not God's wrath, we receive his mercy. It's brilliant. That the world is broken, no doubt, we see all that, but God is going to remake it and God's final word is never wrath, God's final word is restoration. It's always restoration. It's like this. Um, do you love a remodel in your home? Is anyone like, man, I just look forward to that. Please, you do if there's black mold though, right? If your kids are getting sick, if there's disease, if there's rats that are making their way inside and they're running across your head in the middle of the night, you're saying, please remodel it, please. This place is so bad, please remodel it. And then you have no problem dealing with whatever happens because you got black mold and rats. That's what God says. Listen, this world has black mold and rats. And trust me, I'm going to remodel it. I'm gonna remodel it. That's what I'm gonna do. It's gonna be brilliant. And we have the benefit now of looking back and we have 2020 hindsight. So we see these empires come up, the Babylonians, and they go down to the Medo-Persians and they go down to the Greeks and then they go down to the Romans. And what you see all these empires do is they actually fulfill something that would not have been possible at any other time. So the Babylonians just, they're the, they're the guys that just spread out and they kind of mix everybody together. And the Medo-Persians, they reach even further out to like Greece, Macedonian, and they get even bigger. And then the Greeks come riding on that wave. And what the Greeks gave that entire land that had been united was this, one common language. Greek became the language. So everybody can communicate from, from all the way out to Spain, across just about to India, people could know this language called Greek. And the Romans come and the Romans bring two things, peace, the Pax Romana, and roads. Travel like never before. All of a sudden you could travel from India to Spain and there are roads. Like the, the Romans were amazing when it came to roads. And then right at that point, when you've got a common language, unified peace in the land, roads of travel everywhere, guess what gets birthed? The church. Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, apostles filled with God's spirit. They have a language that now they can communicate no matter where they travel on this new highway system that goes around the entire known world at that time. And that's why by 350 AD, never before in history this happened, 
by 350 AD, they estimate 50% of the cities of Rome were Christian. A spread that had been unparalleled. And so in 2020 hindsight, we see, oh, wow, God, you had a really big plan here. Like, you gotta trust me. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. I know how to make this work. I have a plan. And it's not gonna be cycles that you think just endless cycles. There's an end goal and the end goal is really good. Trust me. And so then Habakkuk finishes by saying this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. I love this book. Begins with complaining and problems. Ends with praise. Now, does he praise because the problems are gone? Mm -mm, They're worse. It's worse than you even thought. It ends because his relationship with God is better and stronger. Now, how did it get better and stronger? Two things and we're done. Number one, chapter two, verse four, B, the just shall live by faith. He learns I'm not supposed to live by my circumstances or by understanding or by trusting in the US government or TSA or Homeland Security or the economy or my security or house prices or my investments or my greenhouses or my orchards. Nope, I'm gonna trust in God and him alone. In chapter one, Habakkuk was trying to use God to get what he wanted. I want you to punish those evildoers. He was trying to use God to get his goal. In chapter three, the end of it, God is his goal. You are my joy. You are my strength. Not you'll give me strength. You are my strength. It's you. And that's the only joy that can never be taken from you because it's eternal. That's number one. The just shall live by faith. And then number two, he remembered. Chapter three is just, it's, it's full of the remembrance of what God has done from creation through redemption, all the way up to even bringing Babylon. He's reminding himself of not only what God has done, but through all this, you see God's character. And in that remembering, he's changed. The reason why we every single Sunday do communion is because we're supposed to remember. Not only what Jesus has done for us, as great as that is, Redemption, the cross, adoption. Not not only all that he has done for us, but also who he is. He's your king. He's your older brother. He cares for you. You remember that. And when you do, here's what you find. Jesus is better than life. He's your joy. He's your strength. He's better than life. Whatever you think would bring you life, whatever that is, whatever you would say, man, if I only had that, it'd be life. If I could only go to Hawaii right now, it's foggy. That'd be life. Disneyland, that'd be life. 
If I could just get a wife, I'd be life. If I could just get a husband, I'd be life. If I could just get a different husband, I'd be life. Whatever it is, you'll find Jesus is better than that. That's what you'll find. Okay. So I was reading today about Jonathan Edwards, who continues to be just an amazing man. Maybe they argue the best theologian America has ever produced. He preached his first message when he was 18 years old. And the title of his message was this, Christian happiness. And he had three points. Christian happiness. He said, Christians can be happy, number one, because whatever's bad in your life will be turned good. Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So he's number one, Christians can be happy because whatever's bad in your life will be turned to good. Number two, he said Christians can be happy because whatever is good in your life can never be taken from you. Your justification, your adoption, your future, your eternal dwelling, the fact that you're gonna rule and reign with Jesus forever, those things can never be taken from you. What's good can never be taken from you. And he said, thirdly, Christians can be happy because it's only gonna get better. As good as it is right now, this is black mold and rats. As good as it is right now, it's just gonna get better. Proverbs 4, 18 says this, that the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter until that day because your future is bright. If you get those three things, man, 2019 is gonna be brilliant for you. Christian happiness. No matter what 2019 is, if it's good or bad or ugly, if you remember those three things, you're gonna triumph, period. To me, that's the book of Habakkuk and it's brilliant. And so Jesus. Help us to be those that remember your work and your character. And because we know your work and your character, no matter what the fourth quarter looks like, we trust you. Thank you that we have more evidence today than we've ever had of how you work all things according to your will. That you use empires like Legos to build exactly what you want. The Babylons, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Americas. You use them to get what you want. Thank you that your final word is never wrath. It's always restoration. Thank you that each one of us who has believed in your son is no longer an object of your wrath, but of your love and your care. Thank you that what's really good in our lives will never be taken away that our names are written in your book of life, that we've been justified, that we've been sanctified, that we've been adopted as your sons and daughters, that we have a future which is to rule and reign with you forever. And those things can never be taken from us. 
Thank you that our future is growing brighter and brighter and brighter until that day. And so I ask, Lord, this night that we would go from here being ambassadors like Habakkuk, rejoicing in you, the God of our salvation, trusting that you are our strength, knowing that you have a plan and we get to participate in that plan with you. And that plan is always good. That we no longer need to fear the enemy of our soul. That we no longer need to fear that sin has a stranglehold on us because you've broken that house, that wicked house, and we've been set free. And so may we go from here set free, rejoicing, anticipating the good plan you have for each one of us in 2019. And I pray this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.